0: 85% of adults say they regularly experience stress with half recognising that they are too stressed. We need to talk about anxiety. This autumn, we'll be looking at some of the different forms of anxiety and the issues that can be on our minds. Jesus had a lot to say about our mental well-being, and we believe his gospel is the very best solution to dealing with anxiety. I felt anxious because I wanted to seem like someone. I wanted to seem like somebody who had achieved, and at the beginning of my company, when I was making no money, I had to get side jobs. I'm somebody with a masters uh, um, from, from a like top university, um, but I had to get like a cleaning jobs and all of this because um, I had put my eggs on this basket. I didn't pursue my masters and you, you just, I didn't want people to look down on me. I think for me, a lot, change in in all honesty when i was in my sort of late teens and realized that i'd sort of had this own plan of how i was going to deal with it and if i would just get be successful enough or be popular enough or or gain recognition then everything would be okay and when i started to do that and actually was going quite well but I still felt just as insecure. I was like, this is, this is just not working, this, I know. And um, you, know, you read stories about other people who have become successful and become famous or anything like that and, and use their talents, but you know, it didn't help that situation. And for me, in all honesty, you know, giving my life to Jesus in when I was sort of 18, 19 and really making that commitment and being like, I'm going to follow you in my life. That just made the world a difference because I was trying to um, establish my own path and work out my own identity. But the moment that I said, "Well, okay, I'm God. I'm just going to accept who you say that I am and my identity in you," uh, that just gave me a grounding and a, and a foundation um, that I felt that I didn't. I don't have to wake up every every day and prove my worth.
1: Good to see you. Thanks for joining us at Shoreham or the marina or North Hove or South Hove. Uh, We are in the early stages of a series of messages called On Your Mind. The theme is anxiety. We're looking at it from different angles. Today we're looking at the the subject of success, very much linked with uh, anxiety and depression. Success or failure, the fear of failure and the longing for success. I suppose in previous generations this would have been slightly less of a concern for people uh, because you, you didn't really need to prove yourself as an individual in previous generations. Uh, we tended to have what, what sociologists call ascribed identities. You were the group you belonged to the family you belong to, the the tribe you grew up in, even the industry you were a part of. If you grew up in in a coal mining area or in an agricultural area, uh, if that was your industry, if that was your job, or even if you were in a profession which had a kind of longevity to it, it got passed on through the generations, that tended to reduce the number of decisions you had to make. Uh, Your path was more or less made for you. And that may, from our point of view, seem a little bit more limiting, um, a little bit narrow, uh, but it certainly meant there were less causes for anxiety, less causes for pressure, less decisions to have to make, less reasons to have to sort of try and set our own stamp, to set our own path, to, to establish before the world who I am. Didn't really matter. I didn't need to because I, I was who I was because of who I belonged to. And certainly that's changed, especially in cities like Brighton, and it's changed in a big way. And so we feel the pressure to, to uh, achieve and to validate our individual status. And we'll feel this in different ways as we go through life. So I know as I, I talk today, I'm talking to people from all different stages of life, different age groups, different demographics. Uh, I came across a, a, a quotation from, from a, a writer called Gordon MacDonald, who talks a little bit about this uh, this this in terms of how it affects different age groups, and he just points out quite helpfully. Teens tend to ask the question, who am I, what am I becoming? Twenties tend to ask the question, what am I going to do with my life and with whom? Thirties will ask the question, now that I've all these responsibilities and obligations, how do I manage all these priorities? Forties will ask the question, am I a success or a failure? 50s will ask the question, as I move into the second half of life, who is this younger generation that wants me out of the way, and how do I cope with the disappointments in my life? 60s will ask the question, how much longer can I do what defines me, or do I change? 70s ask the question, how do I live with loss? And people in the 80s ask the question, does anyone remember who I once was? Now. I reckon that that's a fairly helpful, accurate summary of the kind of uh, the kind of questions, the kind of reflections that will be going through our minds at the various stages of life. And it can happen in a very natural, I suppose in a, in a relatively easy going way, but there is a raw version of each of those questions that can plague our mental health and bring us to exhaustion in different ways at different stages of life. And so I want us to look. At especially uh, a chunk of the Bible, which, if we understand it properly, has explosive potential for helping us to reorient our lives and our perspective. Uh, let's have the passage. It's from Colossians chapter three, verses one to four, and it will come up on the screens now.
0: Colossians three, one to four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.
1: One of the unique things about the the Bible and the God of the Bible is that from the beginning, he gets directly involved in work. He gets his hands dirty, you could say. Uh, that's how he's depicted in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, forming humanity from the ground and human beings uh, getting busy with work in paradise. God ordains, God models work, God, God seems happy with work in a perfect world. The first human beings living in a, in a perfect world with responsibilities, with challenges, with tasks before them. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to notice that not only does God therefore speak highly of work, but, but of the fruit of work, success, that, that work is pointed in a direction. There are things to get done, things to achieve, th- things to, to look at as goals, tasks, vocations, and to be pleased and excited about them. Pleased in the, the envisaging of them, uh, pleased in the in the pursuit of them and pleased in the fulfillment of them. Mega pleased in the fulfillment. Looking back and saying, it's good. It's done. I'm pleased. It's finished. Here's the work that I set out to do and I have succeeded. Therefore, the Bible is pro-success, very simply. It's worth stopping on that and, and just meditating on that because there's so much that I have to say that, that will help us to rethink success and be free from some of the dangers of misunderstanding it. But don't let anybody imagine that that the God of the Bible is anything less than enthusiastic about success. About us as his image bearers, human beings, succeeding, being fruitful, being successful. He's not against that. He invented it. He, He wants us to be, in that sense, fulfilled in the fruit of our work. To look back on our lives and say, look at what has been done. That's a, that's a good ambition. It's a good aspiration. And we can see it from the early stages of the Bible. It means that for any human being to, to live their life without a sense of purpose and direction. To drift. To, to lack a sense of focus and occupation. To lack meaning. To, to lack a... A sense of drive and simply to passively, complacently let life happen to them. This is this is a big deal. This is a problem. As far as the, the, the Bible's teaching, the Bible's explanation of what it means to be human, to live without meaning and purpose is inhuman. There's something subhuman. There's something not quite right about it. God wants for us to 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 feel the the I suppose the joy and the excitement, the wonder of tasks to do, goals to do. And you see that not just from the opening page of the Bible, but as you go through it, you see the way God interacts with people's lives. You see how he tends to draw them into purpose. When you meet God, you meet a missionary. You meet someone who's about something and it affects your life. But there's a massive problem as well. The problem is that although we are therefore wired, we are set up with with kind of success-focused DNA, it seems, spiritual DNA. We've somehow become unplugged from the source of life, from the source of meaning. And by becoming unplugged from him, we don't have clear ideas as to what life is about, the purpose, we don't really know what we're even for ultimately. We know that there's something to do. We can't shake off this instinct of got to achieve, got to succeed, got to do something with my life. That's, that's, that's wired into us from creation. But having cut ourselves off from the God of creation, this drive lacks direction. It just, it just goes it goes without reference to who it's for what it's for why why it's there and it's a little bit i've used this illustration before it's a little bit like an electrical appliance that's not plugged in anymore if you saw a hoover or a toaster and just and didn't know what it was for and if there was if there was no such thing as electricity there was no plug sockets in the world but there were loads of hoovers around you you'd kind of I guess you'd start to invent different uses for them. You start to these could be useful for you know. I'd put my feet on them. I, could, I don't know what I could do. I could. I, there's all kinds of you know. You could use them as weapons. That's probably what we would do with them. We would use them as weapons. Um, but but the, the actual purpose, the meaning, the 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 reason for which it was brought into the world, we're ignorant of it. And the Bible basically says that about us. That's the story, that we we're here we 've got this kind of sense of well we can't we, there must be something that we're here for we, we we can't shake that sense of longing to pursue and and succeed, but we're not plugged into the source, and therefore we don 't even know we don't even know what our potentials are we don't even know what our abilities are really not fully. we haven't tapped in to the ultimate sense of purpose and meaning and so Work, success, failure, all these issues become contexts for trouble, for struggle, for anxiety, for, uh, for depression. And, and the result of it will be, for many, a simple sense of futility. I do stuff and I don't honestly know why I do it in the end. In the end, I don't ultimately know why I'm doing this job. Now you can feel like that after you can feel like after a week of work. I don't know what. If you work in data entry, you know it's tempting to feel that way sometimes. Like just here I am temping in this office, and I, I can't see the usefulness of what I'm doing. I'm just in a cubicle, I'm tapping stuff in, and that's hours and hours going by, and it can feel just on a on a very simple level a bit dehumanising. But don't imagine that that ultimate sense of futility gets shaken off completely if you do work that looks more significant or more noble. Because in the end, it's still going to have to, without God, in a godless universe, become irrelevant. What's the point? Even the most remarkable story of success will be forgotten in the end, eventually. I mean, even in a room with this many people, I wonder how many of us here could... Remember the first names of all four of our great-grandparents. I'd be surprised if many of us could remember any of their names. And we're their family. We're their offspring. We're the people who surely ought to remember them the most. The closest, most intimate people, surely. But generations on, no. First names not even remembered. You don't get any points remembering their surname. (laughs) But the... If that's the case with with family, if that's the case at that sort of nuclear level, doesn't it suggest that within generations that even the most successful of us in this city, we might find that we make for very little eventually. And It surely causes us to have to think, what's what's life without ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning? What am I really pursuing? What's, What's life without being plugged in? I've told this story before, but I, I find it so vivid. There was a prisoner of war camp in the Second World War where some, some, some soldiers had been and taken captive, and they were given the task by their, the prisoner of war, the camp commanders, to move stacks of rocks, just rubble, from one end of the camp to the other. Piles of rubble. Just take this pile of rubble from here to over here. And so they obediently did it. it took them days and days. It was exhausting, back breaking in the in the baking sun. But they did it, and then when they finally done it, brought this pile of rubble to there to make another pile of rubble, the commander said, right, take it back, take it back. And so they they put them all, same thing, all reversed, and then in a kind of sickening, I mean, you know what I'm going to say, it's kind of sadistic, now take it back again. And it just carried on. Eventually, the prisoners of war started to commit suicide, because... Such utter futility, such utter torturous meaninglessness is soul-destroying, dehumanizing. And it's not how we're meant to live. It's not not what we were created for. And, And you need to know that God created you, not for that, but for purpose, for meaning, for destiny. Let no one doubt it. You need to apply that mega-truth like, like an explosive to tomorrow morning, to the rest of your life, to the decisions that you're making in, in relationships, in family, in your nine-to-five. You need to think, I, I'm going to come into this knowing, first of all, that God made me for purpose. There's reason. There's, there's the, the old Greek word, telos. There's, there's purpose, there's goal to life. I'm not just here by accident. No, I'm here by intention. I'm here by design. And I need to catch up with the designer and start to understand. So Let us grasp this. Let us understand it because otherwise we will fall into the trap of futility. We'll also fall into the trap of, of measuring success entirely on a horizontal level. Everything is about how I compare everything. Is about my my achievements, my successes or failures are entirely measured on a horizontal, not a vertical level. I'm I'm shutting out the vertical. I'm ignoring the eternal. I'm ignoring the God who plans and designs and purposes my life. And so I I can only suck in any sense of meaning and purpose by comparing myself to how they're doing, how she's doing, how he's doing. And it becomes a race. It becomes a, a kind of a... A survival of the fittest sort of context. It becomes a kind of it becomes a kind of Hunger Games environment in the end. Where really the goal is to win by defeating. And if I if I if I if I'm going to achieve, it's only by comparison to others. It's all horizontal. And that kind of drive will suck the joy out of you. That kind of drive, if that's what we're left with, will become exhausting. You will sacrifice anything to it. And people do. If, if, that's, if success becomes the God in itself, instead of success being there to serve God, success becomes God. And because success becomes God, anything, anything will go on the altar to that God. To worship the God of success, I will put my marriage on the altar if necessary. I'll put my kids on the altar. Literally, in the sense that I'll be prepared to not even pay attention to them. I'll go through life so pursuing success, and my kids don't even get to know me. And and I'll I'll pursue success to the point where my mental health, fragile as it already is, takes even more of a beating. Because constantly, constantly, I, I must have, I must have. Any God in your life, other than the real one, will harm you. Success is certainly an example. So we, we see the danger of, of being pulled out of the, the wall, if you like, pulled out of the socket. Futility, exhausting sacrifice, and then finally the complete lack of fulfilment. Because even if you do succeed according to those demarcations, if you do everything that the world or the, 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 the false expectations that are placed on you insist upon, you might succeed, you, you, might, you might do brilliantly. A- apparently. Apparently. But how many times have you heard the story of the the Olympic medalist, for example? And this is just one picked at random. I can think of so many examples. I remember a, a small documentary after the 2012 Olympics where people who won the gold said were well, asked the question, "How do you feel after you've won?" <laughs> Without exception, they all said, "All I can think about is the next race. All I can think about is the next. Cause I cannot enjoy this." The very thing that got me here is the drive that stops me enjoying it. The reason I succeeded is because of a drive that does not allow me to stop. Doesn't allow me because I. I it all comes back to: she's training already. He got up early this, this morning already. I cannot afford to stop. I cannot afford. I, this whole thing is about the struggle. I have to push on. Jim Carrey, the actor, said a few years ago: "I think everyone in the world." should become rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of, just so they can all find out that it doesn't work. I, I'm, maybe that's the most helpful quotation, because for many of us, we hear that kind of stuff from cele- celebrities, and we kind of think, yeah, 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 you're supposed to say that. We know that the, you always say that money and fame doesn't really bring, you know, success doesn't make you happy. And Jim Carrey said, okay, let me, let me, let me assure you, <laughs> I think everybody should succeed to find out for themselves. We're not kidding. In itself, it's ashes in the mouth. And and in reality, we know that to to be constantly concerned about how we're coming across and whether we're winning the race is not going to help us succeed anyway. Ultimately, the the real genius is the self-forgetful one. The person that's so enjoying, so focused, so taken up with the task, so taken up with the goal, the the thing they're doing is the thing that gives them joy, that person actually ends up usually creating the best stuff anyway. The person that writes books in order to become a great writer, the person that writes songs in order to, I'm going to write a song right now that everyone's going to think is amazing. You can kind of usually tell their focus isn't on the the art, it's on the, the crowd and it tends to be self-defeating it doesn't tend to work what we need is to find freedom from this condition what we need is to be plugged back in what we need is to 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 be kind of restored to our initial setting where The successes that we pursued were pursued in freedom and joy and in response of love towards the one who made us for them. We we want to pursue them because we love him, not because I must in order to prove that I'm not a failure. These words that we saw from Colossians chapter 3 are... Devastating in the best possible sense to that that sort of constantly demanding and dominating drive that we either feel controlling us or at least speaking loudly to us. The temptation to pursue success as a God in itself a temptation to measure ourselves against others as a way of being a valid person. These words in Colossians 3 change the whole story for us. They, they, they have the potential to rescue us. Because what the Bible means here, when it speaks about something that has happened to those who belong to Jesus, Something that has happened. You have been raised. You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Paul, who writes this letter, is saying this is your real story. This is your real identity. This is the story of your life. People who feel the pain of failure will, will often subconsciously, maybe vocally or just in their own inner dialogue, say, oh, this is the story of my life. Story of my life. Story of my life. I failed. Story of my life. If you feel you get into that horrible cycle, that, that seeming kind of harsh, habitual, addictive cycle of failure. Story of my life. And Paul comes to us saying, no, no. In Christ, there is a an alternative and truer story of your life because the, the thing that Jesus has come to do is not simply provide us with an example. What Jesus has come to do is, is provide himself as an identity for us. To say, by my kindness towards you, by my sheer goodness, I give myself to you fully. Join yourself to me. I will take all of your sense of failure. I will take all of your real failure. I will take all of your guilt and shame upon me. You can have all of my perfect record of obedience, of sacrifice, of total success in everything that God the Father gave me to do. Everything that I have done for him is passed into your account. This is now Who you are. And on the cross, I became who you were. So Paul is saying this is your story. You've died and been raised. Your life, whatever it seems like in the eyes of this comparison demanding culture, this individualized consumer culture where you're not even valid if you haven't racked up a certain amount of kudos, a certain amount, you're not even legit. Whatever it seems like, that is not your life because your life is hid with Christ in God. This is who you now are. All the big stories tend to do something like this. So many, so many of our stories, especially I guess our kind of fairy tale stories, the sort of stories that young people grow up with. I was thinking about even the Harry Potter stories. You've got a story about a, a, an orphan boy who, who grows up in, a, in a, a family sort of domestic situation that belittles him, treats him horribly. But at a certain point in his life, he's kind of summoned, taken into another world where he gets new identity, new task, new responsibility, new adventure, new success. But at the end of each of the Harry Potter books, and there's seven of them, it keeps happening. He goes back just for the summer holidays to his family, to his not real family, and they don't know anything. They don't know who he is they've no idea he's just that annoying kid that lives under the stairs but he knows who he is and so he goes through these years as a schoolboy he knows every at the end of every story whatever whatever they say about him he knows who he is he's a wizard at hogwarts he's 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 the one he's the boy who lived he's the he's the one with the scar he's he's something and so it really doesn't matter these people who in the first pages of the first book are fierce And controlling and defining for who he is. By the end of the story, they are simply a comic figure. They're just a joke. Because we know who Harry is. And these these step-parents who don't really understand him, they're they're just a joke. This world keeps telling you that success means this, means this, means this, means this. You need to get to the point where you can literally see through it. It's a joke. It's a joke. I know who I am. And stories, Great stories will do that, but those are stories that are fake, they're fairy stories. This is the story of the man who truly came down, truly was crucified, buried and raised. This is the true story and you and I get to be a part of it. In the story where something so real has happened, we have a participation. Something so real as a death and resurrection affects the course of my life, the identity, the destiny of my life. Changes everything. It rescues me. It takes me away from the false drive, and and my task then becomes to align myself with this. See, I, c- I can persuade you of the theology of this. You can read these verses and say, "Yeah, I think I line up with that." Maybe, especially if you're a Christian, you think, "Yeah, well, that's true. I believe that." Maybe you're considering Christianity and you're thinking, "Yeah, I can see how that would work. I can see sort of how the idea of Jesus." Dying on the cross for me, exchanging his goodness with my sin and me being joined with him and raised with him. I, I sort of begin to get that, but really? <laughs> Does that really count tomorrow when my colleagues don't really respect me? Does it really count tomorrow when I realise once again I, can't, I cannot keep up with my mortgage does it, does it matter this week when I realize the project that I'm responsible for and everyone's waiting for me and looking at the deadlines, I know I can't get it done in time and I feel like a failure? Does it really help? Does it really help when I know I'm going to have to just take a demotion? Does it really help when I know I was aiming for a 2-1 but I had to live with the 2-2 and maybe, maybe I, I, I was really hoping to, to get this? And I, Does it really help Does this really make a difference? It's lovely. It's a nice story, but what does it count if no one notices you? If no one respects you? This is why Paul says what he says. This is why these verses are in the Bible. Verses like this are here because of how you feel. He says in verse 2, set your minds on things that are above it's, that's what we do. That's the, that's the task. That's the step of obedience we need to take. If we belong to Jesus, we've got to learn to do this stuff. We've got to learn to set our minds. When your mind isn't set, <laughs> what's a jelly like that isn't set? If you don't set your mind, if you don't say, I'm going to choose to believe this account, I'm going to line up with it. I'm going, to, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to reflect on it. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to consider it often. I'm going to let it ref- affect me. It's written here, and we can just think, well, it's true. That's good for me. I'll, I'll accept that. And then carry on an emotional existence where our mental health is never affected by these verses. We don't allow it to. We simply don't allow these verses To touch what we see as real life. This is real life. That's just verses in the Bible. But what about if we've got it completely the wrong way around? This is real life. And this is just emotions that haven't caught up with real life. I've been looking at it. It's like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. I've just been doing that for so long. I've never stopped to consider. This has got to drip down. It may take dripping. It may take time. Let it, let it set your mind. Jelly set over time. Set your mind, set over time the frame of your mind. So I, I'm going to I'm going to align with this stuff. You know, I'm married. I have a marriage certificate. I haven't looked at it f- since the day I got married. I don't think. Or I took it to the took it to the place you're supposed to take it to a couple of weeks later. I can't even remember. 20 years married. Next month. You're allowed to whoop twenty years married next month this this is this is this is only possible surely because every day I look at this uh, piece of paper and 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 just remind myself yeah i'm i I'm, I'm married yeah no it, it the piece of paper in the end i it just it was a it's necessary it's good to have you know important civic party place but my, my relationship with my wife has grown on from now i i i i'm with her i'm i my marriage develops as I get time with her, as we talk. And you need to, to build relationally this union that you've come into with the one who is your life. So we align with him. second thing we do is we, we reject some things. We have to. We have to reject the false identities, the false narratives that are placed upon us. It happens all through history. Anyone who comes to Christ at any time in history has to reject the false narratives that society wants to put on them. For us, it will be success, failure, success, failure, because, well, you've got that job, not this job, or you you haven't even got a job, or because, well, you're, you're this and I'm that. In the New Testament, it was, well, you're Jewish and, and, and I'm, I'm Greek, or you're, you're Greek and I'm Jewish. And so there are certain levels. You're a slave and I'm free. You're male and you're female. Certain levels of value were ascribed. And Paul, in his letters, has to say deliberately reject those things. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All are one in Christ. This is your identity now, learning to walk in that, means rejecting some false narratives. This is not who I've been made to become. I've been brought into union with this person. And it changes the way I see myself at different stages. So many of us, the the subjects of success is painful because we measure our success by where we've reached on the ladder. And where we've reached on the ladder is somewhere that society disdains. Stay-at-home mums. How much respect does mainstream society in Brighton respect Uh, How much respect does it pay to stay-at-home mums as a career choice? I can tell you from watching in this church and watching my own wife—not a great deal, not a lot of kudos, not a lot of—we we we spent time with stay-at-home mum, blah blah blah, just to learn how cool her life is. Not a lot of Instagram, not a lot of, not a lot of kudos, not a lot of because because our culture, our society doesn't particularly vaunt it. So what are we going to believe then? What are we going to choose to accept? Now that's just one example. Think of all the many other ways in which some of you, because of your job, because of your not particularly respected job, have measured your level of success. Come away, stop, consider, read these verses and think, could it be that by God's grace, I am a success already? I, I've become a success. <laughs> this is the real narrative. This is, this is who I truly am And therefore, I'm not going to believe the lie anymore. I'm going to see through it. This is difficult sometimes, especially in seasons of our lives. It's subtle. I can think of times when it's not so much the the status or the position that I occupy, the place on the chart that I'm in, but the season where I don't feel very productive. What do you do about those times where you... You just look at the last week or the last month or the last year and you feel next to him, next to her, I have produced nothing. I feel like I've got nothing done. and it, it, It's a similar kind of pain and it's a very easy trap to fall into to, to allow that to sort of shape our identity. Sometimes the the lack of productivity in our lives is forced upon us by circumstances. A friend of mine a few years ago went through a season where he he was starting a new organization, which wasn't flourishing. He was working night and day to see it succeed, but couldn't. Partly because his wife went through breast cancer and devastating insomnia, for months and months, it was, it was huge. It was a massive distraction. Found he couldn't focus, needed, needed to serve her, needed to be there for her. Everything seemed to be put on hold. Life just paused for a long, long time. And he, he, didn't, he didn't know how to think, and he found it exhausting emotionally. And he, one stage, turned to a, a very helpful, wise, fatherly friend of his and said to him, I feel so unproductive. And this friend very wisely said, Jesus doesn't talk so much about being productive. He talks about being fruitful. Maybe you should change your criteria a bit. Are you being fruitful? Can you see any fruit in your life at the moment? He stopped. He thought about how God had helped him to be more patient over this year. How God had helped him to be more loving towards his wife. How he'd grown in his forbearance, in his servant attitude towards his children. How, how God had helped him to trust in, in the father's sovereignty and timing. And his perspective shifted hugely because he began to feel less concerned about how he looked and how much potency he was able to demonstrate. You know, I've, I've achieved these, these metrics. I've got this. Look at the, You can You count them. Count them. Nothing to count but loads of fruit, loads of fruit. And he could say, Jesus, thank you. I've been fruitful. That's success. By the grace of God, that's success. Sometimes we need to be set free from a distracting set of criteria. Finally, we do need to aspire. In all of our relativizing of worldly values of success, Don't for one moment stop pursuing success. God defined success. Pursue it with all your heart. Be ambitious, I command you. In the name of Jesus. Let every man and woman in this church and in this city learn what it means to know God. Start being ambitious. Start longing to do something fruitful with the life he's given you. But you do it. Because you know him. It's not, it's not to accumulate a basis for boasting. It's not to accumulate an identity because it's what you already have. The, 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 in the Bible, it's talked about like this, having a name. I must have a name for myself. There's a story in, the tower, in, in Genesis chapter 11 of the people who built the Tower of Babel. They built it to defy God and the words they used were, to have a name for ourselves. Do you know that no one knows their name? <laughs> their name doesn't get in the Bible. These people that said, "We will build a tower so that we will have a name for ourselves," not. Their names didn't get in the Bible, and it's not because the Bible's not into names. Have you noticed? There's quite a few. There's quite as page and page names, lots of names, but they're usually the names of people who weren't looking for a name. The people in the book of Nehemiah who built the wall, they just built it because they knew God had called them. They loved God. They wanted to serve God. They didn't care about their names being in the Bible. Their names got in the Bible. If, if If you long to succeed because you love God, your heart burns to do something for him, you might be surprised. You might be surprised. Your name might get lifted up one day. You might get a lot of honor one day. Your name's definitely written in heaven. In fact, your name is written on his hands, the Bible says. Jesus knows your name thought of your name at the point of sacrifice you are named you are known by name but partly because you let go of the desire to snatch at glory Jesus who did not consider equality with God as something to be snatched humbled himself made himself nothing becoming obedient even to death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. To be focused entirely on building a name for ourselves is the most likely way to ensure that we won't we won't make it. (laughs) Our names will be forgotten, terribly forgotten. God, I I want to see you glorify. I want to live. I want to enjoy and know you. I want to live free from the clamour and the panic. Let me finish with this illustration. You've maybe seen the the, the talent shows, the Britain's Got Talent, the X Factor ones, where all the way through the contest, maybe it's a singer in X Factor, they've got to to sing at every stage. And as it gets gets, hot up, you know, it builds up to a climax. Each round, they're singing, they're singing in competition with the other singers. If they sing well enough, they're through to the next round. If I sing well enough, I might succeed. <laughs> what a pressure. I have got to sing well, otherwise I'm out, I'm done. That was it. That was my chance. But then there comes a point at the very end when somebody wins. What happens when they win? They sing one last song. It's time to sing. Can you think of the difference in terms of the drive behind singing? If, if I've got to sing to survive, I'll sing a little differently. It will feel a bit different than if I sing because I've already just won. I <laughs> just won. <laughs> Imagine the relief and the joy and the freedom. Now, I ask you, if you follow Jesus Christ, which are you supposed to be more like? Which, which is the way you live your life? Like the singer who's singing just to survive? Just to stay in? Or do you know deep down in your heart, because you're taking verses like this to heart, you're persuading yourself daily, Christ is my life. My life is hid with Christ in God. I will appear with him in glory. I sing because I've won. And if the world doesn't even notice, my name's in heaven. My name's on his hand. And, and honestly, that kind of fruitfulness is worth In eternity, what nothing in this passing age could even scratch. Let's pray together. God, we we ask you to help us, I pray, to discover for ourselves the the tasks to which you call us, the gifts you've placed in us, the abilities that will make our, our our vocation more likely the goals reached, help each one, help us, but help us as well to be set free and relieved from false pressure, to see through the lies and to rest truly in the success that's already been provided for us in Jesus. In your name, amen.